Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to start very briefly at the end of chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, starting at verse 30, the end of the chapter. And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew. Let showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God, who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. They are corrupt, and not his children. To their shame they are warped and a crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruits of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from from the herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, And the finest grains of wheat, you drank the foaming blood of the grape. Jeshurun grew fat and wicked, filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them, and rejected the rock their saviour. They made him jealous with their foreign gods, and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are are unfaithful. They made me jealous by by what is no God, and anger me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down on the realm of the dead below. I will devour the earth and its harvests, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamity on them, and expend my arrows against them, I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fang of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. The young men and young women will perish. 
the infants and those with grey hair. I said I would scatter them and erase them, their, memory from human, their name from human memory. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all this. They are a nation without sense. There is no desertment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison and their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobra. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants. When he sees their strength is gone and no one else is left, slave or free, he will say, now where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in? the God who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear, swear as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy, enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. I wonder what you look for in a good song. You might know I am uh, the chaplain uh, at, uh, at the school that I work in. I'm also a music teacher. And one of the courses that I teach my uh, students uh, is how to write a hit pop song, in fact. And um, the answer is very simple. Uh, you just need four chords, chords one, five, uh, six, and four, in that order. And you have the formula to write pretty much every successful pop song that's ever been written. Uh, or maybe uh, in a good song, you look for words. Words which are going to be meaningful to you, which are going to be powerful. Maybe words which might even build you up in some way. Well, Deuteronomy 32, uh, which we've uh, had read to us this evening, is a song of Moses. But in fact, it's really a song of God. I don't know whether you spotted that. But this is actually a song which God uh, revealed to Moses and asked him to pass on to the people of Israel um, for them to sing. And it wasn't just a one-off song either. There's a few of them in the Bible. But this was actually a song which God told Israel. He wanted them to uh, learn, to remember, and to sing as if you like their national anthem. And it's at a really key moment. They're just about to cross over the River Jordan uh, to enter that promised land, which they've been waiting to do for about 40 years or so. So it's, it's a really significant moment. And you think, wow, this is a song written by God 
for his people just at the time when they're about to take possession of something which was promised to them way back at the start of the Bible. So if you don't know uh, uh, about Abraham, uh, he was one of the um, big characters right at the start of the Bible, and God promised to him ages ago that he was going to provide a people of God, that they were going to go into a land which God was going to give them, and that they were going to be blessed in that land. And um, it took hundreds of years to sort of um, build up for those promises. And God was reiterating them, and he told them again to Moses, and it still seemed unlikely. But then, after all of this build-up through uh, many, many, many years, they are on the edge of the land. There it is. It's just one river separating, and uh, they're about to go in. And God gives them this song to be their, if you like, national anthem. Now, if Edward Elgar had been commissioned to write this song... It would have been Land of Hope and Glory Part 2, wouldn't it? It would have been joyous. It would have been uh, Victoriana. There would have been cymbal crashes. Um, but in fact, the song that God gave his people couldn't be more different. It's really quite shocking um, as we read through. Um, just have a look back. Uh, hopefully you've got um, Deuteronomy chapter 32 open uh, in your Bibles. Do open it up uh, if you can, but uh, we're just actually going to look back to chapter, one, chapter 31 to start with, uh, uh, and uh, it's on the screen. In verses 19 and 20, God reveals why he's giving Israel this song, and he says this, now, write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it, so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I've brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and, th and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. So what's the purpose of this song? Why does God want Israel to sing it? Well, to be a witness against them. It's a song to humble them. Because God knows what our hearts are like. Israel might be firing on all cylinders now, but God knows that as soon as they get into that land flowing with milk and honey and they enjoy all the blessings of it and they build nice houses and they get going with their jobs and they find their daily routines, very, very quickly they will completely forget the God who's given them all those good things. And are we really any different? Write down this song, God says, that it may be a witness for me against them. But that's not all that this song does, because this song actually is structured like a legal document. So it starts off with a character witness for God. It tells us what God is like. It then goes on to a pretty damning indictment of his people, and it's sort of the, the prosecution drilling down into what Israel have done. And then the second half of the song is really God deciding what he's going to do with his people. What's the result? What does the judge decide? And while I don't want to give too much away uh, too early, perhaps you noticed in the final verse, verse 43, it says, rejoice. Rejoice. Perhaps not the ending you were expecting, because ultimately God will not give up on his people in just the same way that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ to atone for your sins here today, we can rejoice because we know God will never, ever abandon us. So let's have a look at this song together then. Uh, and while it was originally Israel's national anthem, I trust that we'll find there's lots in there for us too. So uh, we're going to look through in three stages, starting with mercy shown, which is verses 7 to 14. 
So for nine very tense days in May, our nation was gripped by the Wagatha Christie trial. Uh, I trust you read about it uh, in pretty much every publication going. Um, in case you somehow managed to avoid it, this was the libel case between Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy, uh, the wives of two former England footballers. Now, to be honest, I'm not actually entirely sure who ended up winning or losing the case, because essentially, over the course of those nine days, there seemed to be so much dirty laundry just being thrown around that nobody, neither of them, came out of the case looking particularly clean. Well, as I mentioned, our song actually takes the same structure as a legal document of the day, uh, uh, and it sets out um, it's set out in a fairly formal way, beginning with an introduction in verses 1 and 2. So if you glance down at your Bibles, we'll go fairly quickly. Verses 1 and 2, this is where heaven and earth, uh, the covenant witnesses, in fact, are told to listen to this important message. We're then introduced to the two parties, but rather than Colleen and Rebecca, we have God and Israel. So God is introduced first in verses 3 and 4. Let's have a look at some of the words used to describe God. He is great in verse 3. He's worthy of praise. In verse 4, he is the rock. That's the theme that's going to come back a lot in this song. And it reminds us of God's um, uh, foundational character. It also takes us back, perhaps, to Mount Sinai and his justice, uh, which he demonstrated for us there. God is the rock of Israel. Then we come on to the accused. Who are they? Well, in verses 5 and 6, we're told they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Well, what a contrast. You have God worthy of praise, and you have a crooked and warped generation. And on top of that, these are the people of Israel we would normally call, we often call, the children of Israel. But what does verse 5 say? They are not my children. Well, perhaps some of you uh, have sort of uh, a little bell ringing in your head, and you think, oh, that sounds a little bit like Hosea. Well, if you've read the book of Hosea, you'll know that he was a prophet uh, who did some remarkable things and had a remarkable ministry. But one of the things he did to try and grab the attention, really, uh, of sleepy Israel was he named his three children some pretty extraordinary names, the most sort of um, incredible of which was perhaps the third, who he called Lo-Ami. This was the name he gave to his third child, and it literally translates as not my people. It was a really solemn moment in this prophet's life where he was trying to show Israel what was going on, not my people. And it's a theme that comes straight out of this song. Right at the start of this national anthem, God says, they are not my children. And it threatens the whole covenant relationship. You're thinking, well, what does this mean? Has God given up on his people? Is the covenant over? What's going to happen? Well, after these introductions, we then get into the first character statement. And it's where we hear what God is like to begin with. Uh, and what a God he is. So this is really verses 7 to 14. And we'll just pick out a few highlights. So in verse 10, this is the God who rescued Israel from a desert land. We know that's Egypt, where he brought his people safely out um, from slavery. Uh, still in verse 10, he sh uh, shielded him. And God cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. We then get to verse 14. This is the God who fed them with curds and milk. 
from a herd and flock, and with fattened lambs, and with goats, with choice rams of Bashan, and the finest grains of wheat. This is the Michelin-starred restaurant of the ancient world. God's people lacked no good things. This was uh, God providing abundantly in the desert for his people. This is a God who loves his people, who cares for them. He's not a stingy God. He's giving them good food. This is a God who cares for his people. I'll just mention verse 8 briefly. It's a little bit challenging to unpick, but it seems to be that what's going on here is that God is saying when he scattered the nations after Babel, he did so with his own precious people in mind uh, so that Israel essentially would be able to drive out the Canaanites in order for them to take the promised land. So it's yet another way in which God is saying he has looked after his people. In fact, hundreds of years before they were even a people. So what do we take away from this character witness? Well, it's clear. This is a God who is good, who has looked after his people through thick and thin. He's provided for them in the desert. He's saved them from slavery. And he's even thought about where they are going to live, where their promised land is going to be hundreds of years before they were even a people. God truly has been a rock, a sure foundation for them. And the good news here for us is that God hasn't changed. The same God who rescued the Israelites, who looked after them, who provided for them, is the same God who loves every single one of you in this building today. The character reference in that uh, in those verses from 7 to 14, is there to remind Israel that God is good, that he is just and reliable, and it should do the same things for us. In verse 7, we're told to remember the days of old, i.e. what God has done for Israel in the past. And I think that's something that we could do much more of ourselves. If you're anything like me, it's very easy to get swept up in the present. Maybe you look at the news and you read that cycle of political scandals and the war in Ukraine and rising inflation and the cost of living crisis. And it's very easy to let your head get swamped by the present. And often, it's not a very nice place to be swamped in. But what these verses would do is to tell us to broaden our horizons, to remember what God has done for us in the past, that he has loved us, that he has cared for us, that he has provided for us, and not to let ourselves be uh, steeped in, the, in our immediate surroundings. That's, in fact, what King David did uh, in 2 Samuel 22. He prays a prayer of thanks to God for rescuing him out of a sticky situation. And what does David pray? Well, amongst other things, he quotes this song. Remember, it was the national anthem of Israel. And in verse 2, he writes, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And in fact, uh, uh, later uh, this evening or uh, uh, next week, you might want to look up Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 2 when um, the Lord grants her a child after years of abuse and she prays to the Lord, uh, again, the words from this song. Uh, and it's a soundtrack, really, to the Lord's faithful people. As they remember, as they see what the Lord is doing in their lives, they pray in these words of thanks to the Lord, their rock, and their redeemer. And indeed, we can do exactly the same thing because mercy has been shown to us. Our song then has started by giving us a character reference for God, but unfortunately, uh, it now turns a little bit bleaker 
because the case against Israel is about to be put forward, which leads us to mercy spurned, our second point. So it's that moment in the trial where the prosecutor stands up and essentially he looks around, scans the room, and he lays out for all to see the case. And it's not very pretty. So in verse 15, Israel is called Jeshurun. This is almost like a, a pet name, really, that God has for his people Israel. You might have a footnote in your Bible um, that tells you that. So in a similar way that um, the nation might call the England women's football team the Lionesses, well, God called Israel uh, Jeshurun, and it literally means uh, upright one. But alas, uh, in verse 15, what do we read? Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them. They rejected the rock, their savior. And you think, after all God's done for them, after he's rescued them out of Israel, after he's provided for them, after he's fed them, after he's covenanted himself with them, made that promise, what have they done? They've rejected him. And it goes from bad to worse, I'm afraid. Verse 16 they made him angry with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. So almost certainly this is referring to that time at the bottom of Mount Sinai when God's people uh, had a bit of a whip round. They gathered up all the gold they could find. They melted it down and they created essentially a cow, a golden calf, and started worshipping it. At exactly the same moment as their leader Moses was up at the top talking to God. Without doubt, that was a particular low point for God's people. But as chapter 31 made clear, if you remember, God knows that what Israel did in the past, they're going to do again. That wasn't just a one-off sin. That was the pattern for how they're going to live. Well, I mentioned the prophet Hosea earlier. If you've read that book, you'll know it's not just uh, uh, about Hosea's children's names. In fact, uh, Hosea was a good and godly man. He was living a good life when one day the Lord came to him and gave him a pretty extraordinary command. Uh, Hosea was to marry a woman who he knew would be unfaithful to him. And Hosea does it, and he takes himself uh, this wife, uh, and he tries to love her, and he tries to be a good husband to her, and he is faithful to her, all the while knowing that she's not doing the same for him. And she is off um, being unfaithful. And it's, it tears your heart. It's really difficult reading. And that's the point, because it's meant to be a picture for us of how God feels with his covenant people, Israel, constantly turning away from him, constantly rebelling against him. It is heartbreaking. That's how God feels, and it's meant to be painful. Which then leads us into um, the result. So in legal terms, the next part of this song, verses 19 to 35, describe what God is going to do in the situation. We've had God's character reference. We've then um, had um, the account of, uh, for the prosecution, what Israel's done. Well, what's going to happen next? And God doesn't hold back, to be honest, as he lays out the consequences for sin. So in verse 19, we're told that when God saw Israel's idolatry at Mount Sinai, he rejected them, and it made him angry. Now, I'm normally quite a calm person. Um, sometimes uh, I, I do become angry, 
uh, there's quite a lot of huffing and, and puffing, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully I calm myself down or somebody else uh, is able to, to help calm me down before I do uh, anything too much that I'll regret. Uh, but to be honest, even when I am angry, I'm pretty limited in what I'm going to do as an angry person. I'm not the strongest, I'm not the biggest. God is nothing like that in his anger. For a start, God's anger is perfectly justified. He gets angry at sin. When he's angry, it is righteous anger, and it is correct. And secondly, when God gets angry, he has the entire of creation at his disposal in when what he's going to do. God is not without power. In verse 22, God tells us what he would do if Israel continues to sin. And he writes, verse 22, For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. That is holy anger. That is terrible. That is what Israel's sin make God want to do. He wants to set the world on fire because of Israel's idolatry. I wonder, do you realize how angry your sin makes God? In 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, a very famous sermon, called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and it was based on, uh, on this passage. And Edwards didn't hold back on really pressing home the absolute terror of our predicament as, a sinful, as sinful people in the hands of an angry and just God. Because God needs to punish sin. God is perfect. He can't sweep it under the carpet. It's a sobering thing. In verse 23, God writes, I will heap calamities on them and expend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. God is perfect. He can't ignore sin. It's not in his character. Sin can't be swept under the carpet. It has to be punished. And this is what it looks like. And that was the case for Israel. And I'm afraid that is the case for our sin as well. In his letter to the Romans, Paul makes it clear that our hearts go after idols just as quickly as Israel's did. He quotes a psalm of David when he writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, our idols, the ones that we run towards, may be a little bit more subtle than the golden calves that Israel created for themselves. But they're still there. I wonder how many of us worship success or money, or our careers. It's so easy to do. That's what we spend our time and energy and our effort really driving towards. Or maybe it's having the perfect family. That's what we want. And really, if we're honest, that's the goal that we're aiming for. Well, anything in our hearts which dethrones God from having the rightful place 
at the front of our hearts and minds is an idol. If we're living for anything other than for God and his glory, that is an idol, and it makes God want to set the world on fire. Do we appreciate how serious our sin is? As the writer to the Hebrews put it, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what do we do? Well, there's only one appropriate response to these verses, surely, which is to repent. We need to humbly repent of our sin before God, and we need to tell him we're sorry. We need to recognize when we started to drift and to come before God and to apologize, to repent, to confess that we know we deserve the same punishment as Israel and that we've read about in these verses. But of course, that's quite a hard prayer to pray. Or perhaps even this evening, you know that there is a sin in your life which you haven't confessed and brought before the Lord. Well, can I urge you, if that's the case, don't let um, the day pass without bringing that sin before God and confessing it to him. Our sin makes God angry. And while most of us in the room, if we're Christians, know that that's not the end of the story, can I encourage you not to gloss over that either? Because unless we understand the seriousness of the punishment that our sin deserves, we can't hope to grasp just how glorious and just how wonderful our Savior is who saves us from that. So we've seen God's mercy shown. We've then seen God's mercy spurned. And finally, we're going to see God's mercy promised. Because you'll be pleased to know that fortunately the song doesn't end there with the fire in brimstone. In a very dramatic shift, we arrive at verse 36. Do look down uh, in your Bibles to see this. It says, The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. So do you see what's happening here? It's like we've got to the end of the trial. Everything's done and dusted. It was a really clear case for the judge to decide. And um, at that moment, the prosecution stands up and says, actually, even though I have every right to push for damages, I won't. I'm going to uh, leave it. Rather than punishing Israel, in verse 36, God says the Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants. It's a totally unexpected result. And there's only really one word to describe what's going on here. And it's mercy. It's mercy. Despite the sin of the people, the Lord here promises to have mercy on them, not because Israel deserves it. We've established very clearly they don't, but because of God's character. So let's just take a moment to let that sink in. Israel has been found guilty. We've gone through the trial, and that much was very clear. Paul was pretty clear too, wasn't he? That no one, even in New Testament terms, is righteous. Not one. God has every right to bring down that fire and brimstone that we read about. And yet, even though that's what I deserve, even though that's what you deserve, God says he's going to relent concerning his people. In the national anthem, he's going to relent concerning 
his servants. And this isn't because God's suddenly gone soft. God hasn't changed here. It's not because he's decided to sweep the sin under the carpet. No, there's something a bit more going on. God has decided to have mercy on his people and to defend the holiness of his name. I'm not going to go into that too much, but if you want to see more, do look at verse 27, which talks about the holiness of God's name. God then expands on this in the final verse. So we've arrived at verse 43, and do have a look. This is where we get to the rejoice. And notice that it isn't even actually just Israel who are to rejoice. It's, it's everybody. Verse 43 says, Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Because this rejoicing is, in fact, that God is going to bring about justice, that all wrongs are going to be paid for and put right. So that's a good thing, isn't it? If you've ever played a scrappy game of football, maybe in the park after school one evening, you'll know that what you really need is a referee who's going to bring in some justice so that foul tackles are penalized and you can get on with the game as it's meant to be played. Justice is a good thing. Well, God, in this verse, is promising vengeance on his enemies who deserve it and atonement which we'll think about, for his land and people. Now, atonement is 100% good news for God's people. In verse 5, we read that God was saying, you are not my children. Well, atonement is essentially a reversal of that. It's God bringing in his people back to him. It's God reconciling himself with his people. As I say, a total reversal from where we started. And yet, even though we get a lot from this verse, and even though it clearly shows God's mercy is coming, there's a lot that it doesn't say. For example, it doesn't say how this is going to happen or when it's going to happen. So you might be thinking, well, if the sin isn't just going to be swept under the carpet, then how is it going to be paid for? Well, we're not told uh, in this verse. Is it going to be through the Levitical sacrifices, which uh, Moses had been a part of uh, introducing uh, through the Lord. Well, we're not told in these verses. Can an animal ever really take away human guilt? Well, we're not told in these verses. And if not an animal, who will? These are all questions which this song doesn't reveal. God tells the Israelites that he will be merciful, but he hasn't yet given them the full picture of what that's going to look like. About 600 years later, the prophet Jeremiah reveals a little bit more where he, tell, where he reveals that the Lord will bring about a new and better covenant. Covenant, that key word that got Israel into the promised land in the first place. Well, a better covenant is coming. In Jeremiah, it's revealed, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. But of course, even there, there's still uh, many, many question marks. We don't quite know what that's going to look like. And it's not until we arrive in the New Testament, of course, that we know exactly what God had in mind. Because ultimately, these verses in Israel's national anthem and these verses in Jeremiah are fundamentally pointing us to Jesus Christ as the only one who can really atone for our sins when he died on the cross. That's not just for the Jewish people of Israel, 
but it's for all the people of God through the ages, very much including today, who trust in him. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. When Jesus hung on the cross at Calvary, he went through the world being set on fire. He felt the pain of consuming pestilence and the deadly plagues. He felt the fangs from the wild beasts and the venom of the vipers. All the punishment that we deserved was suffered by him, both in a physical suffering, but also through spiritual agony as Jesus was separated from God. In a truly mysterious way, Jesus became not my people and cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, Jesus felt the full weight and punishment of our sins on his shoulders, and he died. And he went through all of that because God had mercy on us. He was forming a new covenant with his people, which doesn't actually rely on our faithfulness at all. We can know peace with God purely through faith. So what is our response to that? How do you reply to that kind of mercy, to that kind of love? Well, there are many appropriate responses, but the one that this song ends with is to rejoice. And I wonder, when is the last time that you rejoiced in your salvation? Yes, we are to be humble. Yes, we are to live our lives as living sacrifices, but we are also to rejoice. That's what this song ends with. We're to celebrate because we are known by God and we are loved by God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That means that when we're troubled, when we feel the weight of our sins on our shoulders, when we've sinned again and we feel wretched, when we feel the most unworthy, we can remember this song and we can and should rejoice because we know that if we're trusting in Christ that he has already paid the punishment that our sins deserve and that we can live a life of obedience as best we can to him and know his blessing. We can rejoice. God gladly accepts us uh, as his repentant people into his presence. That's how Paul could say he was content in every situation. When he was in jail when he was being flogged, when he was shipwrecked, Paul rejoiced. Why? Because he knew that Christ had died for him. And he knew that he had an eternal future which was secure and which could never be taken away. And I pray that you would know that same assurance and that same rejoicing in your hearts too. So to finish then, you and I are not in ancient Israel We haven't been promised a physical land which we're trying to cross a river to get into. No, we've been promised something much, much better. We've been promised an eternity with our God and Savior. He's reserved a room in heaven for all of his people. And quite simply, that is everybody who is willing to confess their sins uh, and trust that Jesus will forgive them for them. That was Israel's national anthem. And it can be yours too. God has shown us mercy. 
We've spurned that mercy. But in Christ, God mercifully forgives those who give over their sins to Jesus and rejoice in the salvation that's been won for us. Amen.